Good morning. I missed y'all like crazy last week as it continues to be a strange and unpredictable season uh, for all of us. If you're a guest with us today, we are really glad to have you. Maybe it's your first time, second time, third time, whatever it is, whatever your story, your situation, you are most welcome here, and we hope that you feel welcome uh, with our church family today. Now, I'm not usually one for clickbait sermon titles, but as you can tell this week, I couldn't resist. Our passage this morning tells a story about a time when Jesus sat down at a table, when he was surrounded by dead men. They were eating, drinking, walking, talking. They were moving about, but they were dead men walking. And the problem is nobody saw him that way. In fact, these men that Jesus is eating with were the good guys. They were the ones that you'd find at all the fundraisers. They were associated with all the good causes. They wrote big checks. They were highly esteemed in the community. They received greetings in the marketplaces. These men were the pride of the people, the pride of the nation. These men were the Pharisees men who represented what God delighted in, men who held a deep knowledge of the things of God. Now, one of these Pharisees invited Jesus over for dinner with all of his Pharisee friends. But did you notice how Jesus did not show up at a tea party? Jesus came to pick a fight. He shows up at this meal, and he goes right after them. He goes right after the religious establishment. He goes toe-to-toe with these leaders of Israel, the very ones that the people were trained to hold in high esteem and to think of as holy and righteous, but not Jesus. He calls them zombies, dead men walking, unmarked graves. So what is Jesus doing in this meal? Why did he come to pick a fight with them? And what does that have to do with you? Maybe the best place to start would just be to ask a really simple, more basic question. Why does Jesus even confront the Pharisees in the first place? Not just in this meal, but anywhere else in the Gospels where we see him interact with him. Why does he do it? You know, why does he even bother? Why didn't Jesus just go and have his own ministry and just leave the Pharisees to do their own thing? Why does he go even so far as to sit down at a table and have a meal with them? Well, an important part of Jesus' ministry that's often overlooked is that he came to overthrow the religious establishment. He came to clean house. He came to expose the corruption of Israel's leaders, the corruption of their power, and the corruption of the system they'd built to burden and crush the people of God. But all this corruption wasn't a new problem. No, these Pharisees were just the ultimate expression of a very old, old, old problem. This was a problem that went back for centuries. But it's not one that God was silent about. In fact, centuries before, God made a promise Look at what he says in Ezekiel 34. 
Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd with no one to search or seek for them. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths. God made a promise. And the Pharisees were at the end of this long line of toxic, corrupt spiritual leaders in Israel. For centuries, Israel's leaders had constructed a religious system that twisted God's word. They ignored his voice. They turned a deaf ear to suffering. They reinforced injustice. They took advantage of the poor. They heaped burdens on the people, and they led them with harshness and cruelty. They were leaders that fed on the life of the people like zombies. The religious establishment had become like the house of Pharaoh. And so what does this meal represent? It represents that God is making good on his word. No longer would he allow these religious leaders to ignore him. He came to confront them in their own house, at their own table, to rescue his people from their mouths. And he doesn't waste any time doing it. In fact, he knows exactly the thing to do to throw them off and to ruffle their feathers. All it took was him not washing his hands. Something so simple, yet something that threw them off. It says in verse 38, the Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. Some of you were like, uh, yeah, that is disgusting. <laughs> Others of you were like, right on, Jesus. Don't give in to the tyranny of the hand-washing police and hygiene. We have, mass, or we have washers, anti-washers. We're already divided. No. It's not about hygiene. We've got to get outside of our modern context and understand this hand-washing is about ritual purity. Jesus is going after their sacred cow. And the sacred cow of these Pharisees is their purity. Remember, the name Pharisee means the set-apart ones. They were known for their purity. And how they wouldn't dare come close to anything unclean, because if you were unclean, then that means you weren't permitted to worship in the temple until you went through the cleansing process. So they washed their hands because you might have touched something in the marketplace that was touched by somebody that was unclean. You might have brushed shoulders with the sinner. And so they washed their hands with rigor and surgical precision. But Jesus doesn't wash his hands. So does that mean that Jesus is unclean because he didn't wash his hands? No, it doesn't. Why? Because hand washing isn't actually a part of the law. So where does it come from? It comes from the Pharisees. It was made up. The hand-washing law was one of their many inventions, an extra law that was added to an already long list. But for these Pharisees, these laws were necessary. 
And part of it we have to understand is what lies at the backdrop of why they created these laws in the first place. Because they believed that if Israel followed the law and they didn't break it, then God would bless them by sending the Messiah to deliver them from foreign rule and make Israel the most powerful nation on the planet. That's what lies at the heart of the Pharisees' expectation. That's at the core of how they interpret the Scriptures. But did you hear it? Did you hear the subtle distinction? For them, the Messiah was not about coming to rescue God's people. The Messiah was actually a reward for God's people, for how righteous they were. And do you hear how toxic that is? What do you think the message would be to the people? What do you think would underlie the culture in this type of system? What would be the equivalent of me and Mark getting up here every Sunday and say, Jesus will come back as soon as you all stop sinning? No pressure, right? What type of culture do you think that would create? Who's going to ever express any struggle with sin to anybody. That's the last thing you do. Well, I really struggle with some sin issues in my life this week, and I'm really having a hard time. Gee, Frank, thanks, buddy. You're the reason the Messiah hasn't come back. Can you see the guilt and the shame and the burdens that would be put upon God's people? And the Pharisees led the charge because they felt it was their responsibility, their duty to lead the people in righteousness and holiness. So how do they do it? They develop these laws. And they developed a lot of laws. They developed all of these extra laws that were designed to keep people from breaking the law in God's word. So there was two sets of laws for them. There was the Torah, which we have in the scriptures, the laws that God gave through Moses. But then they developed all of these extra laws in what was called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was supposed to be a, a hedge so that as the normal Israelite, as long as you didn't break any of the laws in the Mishnah, then you didn't have to worry about breaking any of the laws in the Torah, in the scriptures. So all you had to do was follow the laws in the Mishnah and you didn't have anything to worry about. If the law of God in the scriptures was a castle, the Mishnah was supposed to be a moat that protected God's people from trespassing. So, for instance, take the fourth commandment, to rest on the Sabbath. No work. God commands his people to rest. So to keep the people from working and breaking this law of rest, the Pharisees determined what constituted as work. And then they created all kinds of laws to make sure that people didn't work on the Sabbath and break the fourth commandment in God's law. So the Mishnah said that a mother couldn't carry her child on the Sabbath day to the synagogue for worship because that was work. It also said that a person couldn't travel past a certain point beyond their home on the Sabbath or else that distance would constitute as work. So the Pharisees said, as long as you did all of that, you could rest assured that you had not broken God's law, which is really ironic because keeping up with all that sounds like a lot of work on a day that's otherwise supposed to be devoted to rest. And yet that's how external religion goes, isn't it? It never makes sense. 
But in this religious system, what's the problem? Well, what do you think got all the attention? What was the focus? It wasn't on God's word. It was the Mishnah. In this system, who was it that determined what was righteous and good and virtuous? It wasn't God. It was the Pharisees. So what was the effect and the results of this religious system? In the end, the Pharisees led people away from God, not to God. And so this hand-washing that Jesus doesn't do was their sacred cow. This hand-washing was another one of these laws that they had invented to protect against uncleanness. And to give you an idea of how stringent these hand-washing laws and how ridiculous they were, the Mishnah had six pages in fine print of how to wash your hands. Six pages on how to wash your hands. What hope do you have, would anybody have in that system to ever measure up? You couldn't even wash your hands correctly. Yet alone come before God. That was the message. But Jesus doesn't wash his hands. Because he's not playing that game. So they're astonished that Jesus would take purity so cavalierly. He'd be so nonchalant about purity. But then Jesus starts to talk. And it goes south. He doesn't mix any words. He says, you Pharisees are so worried about what's on the outside of the cup. But you know what's on the inside? You're filthy. Your hands are so clean. Your garments are so pristine. But on the inside, you're full of malice and wickedness. The outside doesn't match the inside. Jesus is exposing how their religion is all pretense. It's all performance. All of their laws and regulations are simply external religion that ignores the heart. It's the type of religion that thinks if you just do the right things and everything is fine, what you do is what makes you acceptable before God. Doing the right actions and the right rituals, that is how God is delighted in you. And Jesus says, what a show. What a show you all put on. He's exposing what happens when the outside doesn't match the inside. He's exposing what happens when we focus on the outside of the cup and we ignore the heart. Just like these Pharisees, unknown to us, it turns into a contempt that judges others. A coldness to the suffering around us a hunger for the praises of men, all the while thinking that we are okay. These Pharisees show us the real danger of external religion that ignores the heart. We miss Jesus. Why? Because we don't live with any sense of need for him. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on. He says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb in your garden, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You neglect justice and the love of God. And the irony is that the Pharisees were huge givers, massive givers. 
They tithed above and beyond what the law of God required. They were the ones that put the million-dollar matches in place to fundraise, to build those new synagogues. They gave big, but they also gave small. They pulled nine mint leaves off of every stem and laid the tenth one aside for God. They gloried in their precision, yet they utterly missed the point. The purposes of the tithes was to support the worship of God's people. The tithe was intended to fund the temple, so what? So people could connect and commune with God. The tithe was how people participated in God's redemptive work in the world. But secondly, the tithe was to help the poor, the sufferer, the widow, the helpless. The tithe was how God invited people to share his heart to see justice done in a world that offers none of it. It was an opportunity to participate in the heart of God to do justice in this broken world. The tithe was an expression of love, but the Pharisees had turned it into a law. And so Jesus says, who cares how much you give when you step over the poor man on your way to the offering plate? Who cares how much you give when you despise justice, you hate mercy? Who cares how much you give when you have contempt in your neighbor, for your neighbor, your zombies whose lifeless heart doesn't go out to the suffering around you. And then he says, woe to you, for you love the best seats in the synagogue and all the greetings in the marketplaces. Pharisees would sit up front in the synagogue. And you're like, that's where you and Mark sit. No, it's not. It is a little different. No, they would sit up front. One would be to my right, one would be to my left, facing the people to receive honor and reverence and respect. And what an irony that is. The very people they made sure to avoid so that they didn't become unclean, they sure didn't mind receiving all the honor and respect from those same people. They didn't have the time of day for them otherwise, except when they came to sing their praise. And Jesus says, you're zombies. You're dead men that feed on the people around you like a buffet. You use them for your own advantage to puff up your own pride. And in the end, these Pharisees that shepherded God's people They shepherd them with a religious system that focused on outward behaviors but ignored their own hearts. They taught the people how to wash the outside of the cup and ignore the inside. They twisted the character of God into one of law, not love. So to the hopeless, they didn't offer hope. They said, here's a guide on how to wash your hands. To the sinner, they didn't offer repentance. They offered rules and regulations. To the hungry, they didn't offer generosity. They offered their own greed. To those who needed comfort, they offered contempt. There's no compassion. They led the people away from God, not to God. How? By twisting words like righteousness, holiness, and purity. They twisted them into something evil. And the worst kind of evil in this world is the kind of evil that calls itself good. 
So in this system, where was there space to struggle? Where was there space for somebody to just not have it all together, man? Where was there space to find mercy and kindness? Where was there space to experience justice and care for the helpless? Where was there hope that God might actually accept them? Where was there hope that God might actually love them? Well, there wasn't any. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came to tell a different story than the system of religion that was all that the people knew. He came to rescue them. He came to reclaim them. He came to be the shepherd that fully expresses the heart of God to offer grace and mercy, justice and kindness, repentance and restoration. And maybe you're thinking, what exactly does all of this have to do with me? I'm glad Jesus cleaned house of the Pharisees, but you know, I don't see a lot of Pharisees around town these days. Well, the truth is, you and I still need to be rescued too. We need to be rescued from the deception of external religion. Don't you and I know how easy it is to fall into just going through the motions, the rotes, and ritual of just doing Christian things and how in the middle of all of that we can feel so lifeless and empty? Why is that? It's because we too are prone to the deception of external religion. And to see part of that, we need to recognize that there was someone else at this table. And he's actually not mentioned in this text, but he was very much present. It's Satan, the devil, the serpent, the dragon. Because in the Gospel of John, Jesus calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. It's probably the only other place in the Scriptures where Jesus makes as harsh of claims about the Pharisees as he does in this passage. He says, you are a brood of vipers, and you look just like your father, the devil. The religious system of Israel had become a stronghold of Satan because the Pharisees looked like him because they did the same thing that he does. He deceives God's people and leads them away from God. By what? By disguising something evil as something good. Because what do we see in the garden? From the very, very beginning, we see how this deception works. We see the serpent deceive Adam and Eve by what? By using God's words. He twisted them into something else. He painted a caricature of who God was and what he was like, and he diverted their attention away from him by saying, no, this is how you will experience goodness. This is how you will be blessed. And the Pharisees did the exact same thing because it was the serpent pulling their strings. They twisted God's word in a way that led people away from God with their endless rituals and laws under the pretense that if they just did all of these things, then this is how they would be blessed and accepted in the eyes of God. And friends, that same enemy that pulled the strings of these Pharisees wants to pull yours. He's very much at work in this world. And he's very much at work in your life going around like a zombie, seeking whom he may devour. 
He's always looking to trap you in that same external, heartless, zombie-like, dead religion that focuses all your attention on the outward behaviors and ignores the reality that's in your heart. Why? Because that's how you miss Jesus. The same way these Pharisees did. He's not going to tempt you to just go out and rob a bank. He's not just going to tempt you to go out and buy a Ouija board. He's not going to tempt you to go out and just kill somebody. No, he'll just get you to think about all the things you should be doing. How does he do it? Same way he's always done. He twists God's word and draws your gaze away from him. He's going to get you to focus all your attention on the outside of the cup. Start whispering things in your ear to make you think thoughts to yourself. I really need to read my Bible more. I just need to have a more regular quiet time. I need to pray more. I need to be a better parent. My devotional life needs to get better. I really need to just set up some boundaries in place to deal with the sin issues in my life. And sure, those are all good things, but what's really the focus? It's not on God. It's on all the actions that you're deceived into thinking will help you measure up. It's not on what God needs to do. He'll just get you to focus on all the things that you need to do. Because he's more than happy to distract you with that endless laundry list of external rituals and obligations that you think will make you worthy and accept it to deal with that guilt and maybe that shame. So he deceives you into thinking that, you know, that more regular quiet time is finally going to clean up the lust in your heart. I just need to pray some more, and that's what's going to cover up all that rage. Showing up to church more regularly, that's what's going to help deal with my anger and eradicate my addictions. That new devotional sure does seem like it might help wash away all of my bitterness and unforgiveness. And yet all of those things, when we eventually fail, the serpent feeds on that guilt and that shame that we feel for not doing those things. And then he tries to reinforce all the ways that we feel unworthy and how we need to try harder. So we double down and we keep thinking, I need to do this. I should be doing that. I need to be doing this. I need to be doing that. No, friend. What you need is the one thing the serpent will never tempt you to think. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. You need the one who came to rescue you from the deception of external religion. You need the one that came to rescue you from all of the ways that you think you can make yourself okay. You need the one who comes to eat and drink with sinners. You need the one who didn't come for the healthy. You need the one who came for the sick. You need the one who comes to commune and fellowship with you. You need the one who says to you, stop trying to wash the outside of the cup. Come to me and I will make you clean. Jesus, your shepherd, offers you an invitation. And it's actually the same invitation he offered these Pharisees. He says, give God the alms of your heart. Give God the alms of your heart and all will be made clean. 
He says, give me the contents of your heart. That's the gift I want. That's the offering I want presented before me. Give me the alms of your heart. Give me what's there, no matter how dirty, no matter how unclean, or how filthy. I actually want that part of you you're trying to cover up. I actually want that part of you that you've done everything you can to ignore. I want that part of you that no water on this earth could ever wash clean. He says, give me the alms of your heart. And that is an invitation to stop pretending, to stop performing, to stop going through the motions that feel so lifeless and to start being honest. So what does that look like? To give the alms of your heart? It's too hard to explain, but it's a lot easier to express. It means maybe showing up on some Sunday morning when you really don't feel like being here at all. And you say to Jesus, Jesus, I really don't feel like being here, but I know I need you. Would you meet with me? Jesus, I can't fight this addiction in my life. I have nothing I have nothing to offer it, nothing to stop it. I need you. I need your help. Jesus, I'm so crippled and so paralyzed by what others think of me. And I can't stop. Would you help me believe that you actually love me? Jesus, I know I feel so empty and so hollow. Would you let me feel your joy? Jesus, I don't know why I am so angry all the time and I'm exhausted. I just want to feel your peace. Jesus, I need you. It's in those moments that you offer him the alms of your heart because you're finally being honest about what's there. And it's in those moments that you can rest assured that you are meeting the one who came to eat and drink with sinners. It's in those moments you encounter the one who desires to wash you clean. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning as we come to your table, we ask that you would rescue us. We ask that you'd rescue us from all of the things that we're proud of,